Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing The Unspoken Name by A.K. Larkwood, All Systems Read by Martha Wells, and the film Ratatouille. And welcome to episode 59, Everybody Wants to Be a Cat. I'm Alex, and I'm the Vogon one. I'm Freya, and I'm the elf one. I'm Macy, and I am the Vulcan. We are three red-headed human fantasy authors. <laughs> and I'm just now starting to wonder why it is that Macy never says that she's the blank one. She only ever says that she's the blank. Because I'm last in order, and then it sounds neater. It's very conclusive. (laughs) Sure. I guess it's like having, you know, ampersand, ampersand, period. Indeed. It's like having an Oxford comma. Yes. Oh, I see. I see how it is. Anyway, we're having an episode today, (laughs) theoretically, if we can ever get get started with this. Darling listeners, your serpents are a little bit loopy. We had like a half hour digression (laughs) before this episode about what the difference between flapjacks, pancakes, and something weird Australian called pikelets. Pikelets are fucking delicious. Baby fish, essentially. They are not fish. They're baby <laughs> pancakes. Not- you put butter and jam on them. They're amazing. Freya, would you like We're to not say having this discussion. <laughs> we, had half an, we had half an hour discussion about pancakes. All right, all right. Do over. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. <laughs> and today we're talking about non-human protagonists, theoretically. Um, but before we get into that, <laughs> Jesus Christ, this is going to be an episode, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I've been in quarantine for two weeks now. Um, we're all a little bit weird. But before we get into all of that, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I finally got around to reading A Memory Called Empire by Arthur Martin, which I absolutely loved. I think both of you have read it and talked about it on this podcast before. I have you haven't read, read it? it okay. I remember I Macy talking about it. Yes. At least. Yes. Wonderful book, really, really excellent. Um, highly recommend. Basically, a lot of things to do with the intersection of space opera and political intrigue and annoying bureaucracy yes. and identity, all all good, yummy things. I also read a YA horror novel called Rules oh. for Vanishing by Kate Alice Marshall, which, Macy, you will love. It oh. has weird plant bullshit. It has <laughs> body horror. It has queer teen girls having feelings. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Those are all your favorite things. <laughs> I'm not. Sold. A lot of the Goodreads reviews were like, oh my god, this is terrifying. I couldn't sleep. And yeah, it's very scary, very suspenseful book, but I don't find books scary. I hate horror movies, right. but I am getting into certain types of horror in book form, and this was an excellent, excellent book. And then going around a 90-degree corner in terms of genre, I also read Briarly by Aster Glenn Gray, which is a very sweet MM retelling of Beauty and the Beast set Aww. during World War II, in which the Belle character's father, the one who initially comes across the Beast's castle and steals a rose, is the one who eventually ends up agreeing to stay. The beast says, you know, leave my, you know, go and get your daughter. I have to have a girl to fall in love with me. And, he's, and the man who's a pastor is like, ha, fuck you, no. My daughter <laughs> is young. She is a war nurse. She has got her own shit going on. Consent is a thing. I'm staying here. You can have me. Uh, and 
this kind of fits into our dragon fucking episode because the beast is a dragon. And yeah, they have this like very cranky um, enemies to friends to lovers story set during World War II and it's it's very sweet. Why is it making nice. me think of Dream Daddy? I, Why is it making I me think of I can't Daddy answer Daddy that question for you, Macy. <laughs> it's a good game, Bond. Um, anyway, <laughs> this week... Um, with the 2.5 brain cells that are rattling around in between mm-hmm. my eyeballs right now, I read my agent sibling K.A. Dore sent me an arc of her upcoming book, The Unconquered City, which Ooh. is the last. It's so good. The it's Sand the last... and Stabbing series. Yes, the Sand and Stabbing series. Um, It's the last of the trilogy. And reading it was just this culmination of so many things that she'd put into the first two books and i think it's all three of them are very quick reads but it really made me feel like this was a trilogy that operates as a unit and builds upon itself and the last one like the very ending of this one made me cry but in a like satisfied Mm. overwhelmed way not like a grief way if that makes sense Very powerful trilogy, um, and I strongly recommend it, and it's queer as heck. This one has a non-binary love interest and a disaster pansexual main character who stabs everything. Um, We love to see it. Yeah, we love that. That's that's kind of our brand. And I also read um, a bunch of fanfic, and this one I'm going to mention is called Perhaps Even Friends by Hiroki Yu, and... I'm a disaster for mentioning it to you lot because it's A, incomplete, mm-hmm. B, from Persona 5 fandom. Okay. Um, <laughs> Weird. <laughs> and C, it hits both of my worst trigger warnings really hard, but I really loved it anyway. Okay. Can I ask what trigger warnings or would you prefer um, not to mention it? Suicidal ideation and emetophobia. Mm, okay but it warned for them really well and at the beginning of each chapter which i find lets me read it because i know it's coming you know right right um but it's about the villain of persona 5 who gets the opportunity to go back in time and try to do things better except because he's the villain he's like nah i'm just gonna try to get my revenge even harder Mm. um and he's kind of awful and accidentally things get better anyway and he starts falling for the protagonist um which is my jam. I have been watching a bunch of The Great Pottery Throwdown this week, (laughs) which is, it's exactly the same as The Great British Bake Off, except it's about pottery instead of bread. (laughs) But like, is the throwing down like with wet clay on a wheel or with like what you do with the pots when you're done because you're annoyed? They're making the pots. (laughs) 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 It is a title that works on multiple levels. (laughs) It's about making... Pots, Macy. It's about pottery. <laughs> Clay. Anyway, um, I also have drifted back uh, or cycled back to the Untamed fanfic um, after my perusal through a couple other fandoms. And I'm about uh, three quarters of the way through Fly Away by Kathleen Jennings, which oh. Freya mentioned a couple episodes ago, um, which is very cool. It's very Australian, isn't it? It is um, very Australian. Oh, this is the yes. one with drop bears. This is the one with sort of drop bears. I haven't. Yeah. There's like a weird sort of like golden furry creature. Is that the sort of drop bear that you're talking about, Freya? <laughs> um, is, are there other drop bears? In the I think the golden furry creature is meant to be like, a dingo equivalent. 
Okay. I'm not sure. I remember there being it's like one of the. Like a it might have been something. one of the um, throwaway myths that's just mentioned that was drop berry, but anyway. Mm, yeah. <laughs> drop bears are not mythic, Freya. Drop bears are real. It's drop a book, Alex. <laughs> it's mixing fact and fiction. Exactly. Anyway, I've also been playing a lot of Stardew Valley because I have quarantine brain right now and I can't read anything or deal with basically anything at all. Um, it's kind of a miracle that I got all the tentpoles read in time, mm. but it was a act of sheer force of will. It has been um, a very weird few weeks for both ingesting and creating like I yes. have, I've done quite a bit of reading, but not as much as I usually do because my brain sort of just gets a bit stuck on things. And then I wrote absolutely nothing for a week, and then wrote thirteen thousand words of fanfic in one day. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's yeah. a lot for you. So but- it's been a, it's been odd. <laughs> it's been weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, uh, let's have an episode. We're not going to keep talking about pancakes. <laughs> Darling listeners, there may be a dot point here that says, The Serpent's Fun Facts Baffled Biscuit Corner. We already had that before the podcast. (laughs) All right. So we're talking about uh, non-human protagonists, and I have not so much a taxonomy, but a sort of very messy spectrum, because I started writing this out, and it doesn't really map very well onto a spectrum. So what sort of non-human protagonists do we have? We have the kind that are essentially just fancy humans, like Time Lords, ones that are human in appearance, human in behavior, in mindset, they have two hearts and they're immortal. (laughs) Um, Or they have some kind of weird ability. Um, You have ones that are very human-like, but they're slightly into the uncanny valley, such as elves or Vulcans. You have ones that are visibly non-human, but are still sort of human in silhouette, like they have a head and two arms and two legs and a torso. (laughs) Um, But possibly tentacles. No tentacles, right. Um, like no visible or... tentacles. No visible tentacles, sure. Oh, home's You're not. making my, my spectrum, <laughs> this neat and Sorry. tiny spectrum, very complicated. Um, you have the uh, human passing, but definitively non-human, uh, like the murder bot, which we'll uh, talk about later. Uh, you have an anthropomorphized non-human, like uh, most cartoon animal protagonists. Like, they're a animal but they're basically people right yeah sure you're making me think about anthropomorphic now and like people being tables but continue yeah yeah Yeah, anyway um (laughs) and then you have the kind that are wildly non-human like moya from farscape Mm. who's just the literal ship yes tentacles go here (laughs) and and sentient spaceships definitely go here yeah. And I guess dragon. I guess you know, once in the, in the realm of protagonists, there's probably not quite as many in this particular section. Um, but you definitely get a lot of supporting characters that are mm. in this, like AIs, like yeah. in Person of Interest. The machine is a you know non-human Ooh, yes. major character, a... but not a protagonist. Right. And I haven't read, I haven't read Anne Leckie's The Raven Tower, but apparently that has a fairly non-human. Narrator? I haven't read it. <laughs> Deep Drug. shrugs all around. <laughs> okay, the serpents will we'll veer away from discussing a book that none of us have read. <laughs> but all I've but heard is the narrator is work. a rock? Question mark. Okay, fascinating. Cool. Uh, that <laughs> anyway. sounds fun. Let's come back to it. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about our first tentpole then, Macy. Yes. yes. So this tentpole is one of my favorite reads. Um, I want to say this year, but I did read it last year, so I'm cheating. 
Um, I mean, this year has been 3,000 years long already and has already kind of subsumed last year in my brain. So I think we'll count it. The past two weeks have been a very long year. Um, What date is it? Should we say what date it is? Darling listeners, it's March 27th. When we're recording this. Slash 28th. Slash 28th in Australia. I'm sorry. Thank you representation on the wrong end of the dateline uh or the yeah. right end of the dateline depending uh freya you will notice the only snake who is the right way up in our serpent symbol anyway <laughs> <laughs> darling listeners i'm sorry uh, <laughs> this is gonna be an episode <laughs> tell us about this book macy, macy the first tentpole that we are talking about today is called the unspoken name by a.k lockwood and it is an ff book about an orc priestess who gets rescued from her fated sacrifice by a terrible wizard dad and runs off to become an assassin because why not i love the terrible wizard dad so much the terrible wizard dad is amazing the worst wizard dad honestly (laughs) so this book i've been describing it to people as kind of like the tombs of atuan by way of homestuck yes actually right (laughs) that's not a bad way to describe it and i it's just Cassie has such poetic prose, but it's also fucking hilarious. Yes, and there, there were a couple times reading this book where I had to stop and just like marvel at how beautiful a sentence was, and go, "I'm stealing that. <laughs> it's too good." <laughs> and there was traveling between worlds in gate ships because the important thing about this book, in the context of this episode, is. There are no humans in this fantasy world, and to call it a world is a little bit stretching things. The people Mm -hmm. in this book do refer to their existence as being a world, and the various places that people come from on sides of the gates as countries. But really, we're talking about a universe with different planets that they Mm -hmm. travel between on these fantasy bright green portals called gates through a place called the Maze, And if you're from different planets originally, and they do colonize other lands, so you have people of the same species being from many different planets. Yeah. um, Or possibly even dimensions. Yeah. Or possibly dimensions. I wasn't thinking of it in terms of a universe with different planets that all existed in the same space. I was thinking more that these could actually be layered dimensionally. I I can see that too. I think that it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. That's but they are Semantic all different arguments. species, and none of them are human. Um, and our main character, Xorway, is an orc, and she is the best stoic butch. Um, and she has no time for anything. Um, and the terrible wizard dad, and the annoying co-worker who you want to drop off a cliff, um, yeah. are both tall elves. And the love interest, Truthmilly, who is a sad goth mage girl... Um, is sort of a goblin type thing? Unclear. Mm, mm. Have you worked it out was... yet why this is perfect Macy bait? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I just sad love the goth mage life. Sad goth mage girl and punchy orc butch. Yeah, yes. L- Listen, With tusks. And she has tusks. She has tusks. And there's this moment the first time that. Spoilers for The Unspoken Name by A.K. Larkwood. There's this sentence the first time that these two kiss about Xorway thinking that this is probably the first time that Shuthmili has kissed a girl with tusks. 
And that's why it's a little bit awkward. And the audience is sitting there going, no, you fucking idiot. She's a cloistered mage. She's never she kissed kiss anyone. <laughs> the tusks are not the issue here. And sorry, you've kissed like maybe what? One person? How many people have you kissed again? Only one on the page besides her. But I, I like so. the, the existence of tusks and especially as something that Solway has and notices because mm-hmm. it, obviously you do a lot of world building and character building by what a character notices. And right. so if there is something unusual or distinctive about another character's tusks, then it will be part of what Solway notices and comments on in her mind. Right. She may not mention it if there's nothing remarkable because obviously for her it's just completely normal. It's just something that people have. Mm-hmm. But then you can do a lot of world building by commentary on what it means to have broken tusks or tipped tusks or tusks of a particular size. Or the, yeah, I love the yeah. thing they were talking about. Um, I guess Scrimshaw. I was visualizing it like Scrimshaw. Yeah. yeah. Where they would carve into their tusks these intricate designs. I'm like, these are their teeth. Um, mm. Ow. <laughs> <laughs> but it also does some really cool stuff around being a non-human character who is living for most of the book outside of your own culture with people who aren't the same species as you um it's kind of an emigrant narrative Mm -hmm. because most of the people around Xorway do not have tusks she isn't on osharu Mm. right and like that makes a big difference in like how she's viewed and how she's treated Mm. and in her line of work specifically that can be kind of a benefit because she's acting as this hired sword bodyguard type thing and a lot of the people around her see her as a very intimidating kind of figure i Um, really loved how often she would just like play the stupid orc yeah Mm. i really liked that because the book does something very clever playing into what the reader assumes about what an orc character is and is going to do Mm -hmm. whereas solway comes from a world or planet where everybody is orc so orcs do every single role in society (laughs) and yeah she grew up as a priestess and there are people on her planet doing every particular thing. And then suddenly she goes to through the gates and is somewhere else. And there are clearly similar stereotypes about what kind of person she must be and what kind of skill set mm-hmm. she has. And mm-hmm. she's quite clearly been trained up by her terrible wizard dad to take advantage <laughs> of both that stereotype and what is perceived to be a natural ability to punch things. Which, yeah. to be fair, she kind of does have. She kind of does have a natural ability to punch things. But she had to One be trained that, into it. Yes, yes. One thing that I really liked about this book was how complicated every character was. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there was a single character where I had the same opinion about them at the beginning of the book as I did at the end of the book. Right. Everybody kind of had a big shift from one point to another. How much did you love the librarian, Orana? She I was love pretty Arana. cool. She's I, great. I liked her. Yeah. Yeah. And I had this realization the second time. I like the was, bitchy one. Though. You like the <laughs> bitchy one. You like, of course, you like Tal. Everybody so, likes Tal. I believe that when Kirsten was first announcing the deal for this book, she talked about because Cassie and I share an agent, dear listeners. Yeah. Um, she talked about this book as the one where Millicent Bulstrode and Draco Malfoy have to run around on quests <laughs> together. That's exactly it. It's basically it. Yes. <laughs> That's it. That's the book. But apart from these characters who are kind of the type three from Alex's not a taxonomy the mm-hmm. sort of visibly non-human but still mostly human I want to talk about the giant snakes oh yeah the giant snakes were fucking rad 
Yes. Because this is a world slash universe where part of the normal natural flow of life is that some planets get affected by entropy and start breaking down. And so partway through the book, we visit a planet that's just a desert and the sky is pulling open and these columns of stone are coming through and like it's being eaten and mm -hmm. it's full of giant snake bones. Just fucking were everywhere. The were the giant snakes the actual quote unquote people yes. who lived there? Were or okay. That changes how I was thinking of the architecture. Because I thought I was interpreting them as sort of being like just megafauna that were around no, they were they were the sentient cool. beings of that You're world. Right. Yeah, that's rad. Yeah, and, and that's why there's this great scene where Soy comes into contact with one of basically the, the last one. I guess. One of, <clears throat> one of the last ones left. And yeah, obviously, giant snake trying to eat you. But also there's this immense pathos of the last of your race, understandably mm -hmm. very annoyed that all the other snakes are now dead. But I also got to the end of the book and was sitting there with like a galaxy brain or possibly idiot brain moment going, is Terrible Wizard Dad actually a snake? Oh shit. Because his patron goddess was the snake goddess, which implies yeah. that he was born of that species. Spoilers oh, maybe he's, for the maybe unspoken he's name. <laughs> maybe <laughs> Terrible Wizard Dad was a giant snake. Snakes are not well known for their parenting skills, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> I mean, he's the worst wizard dad. He fucks one of his children. Yeah, like, mm, I mean, not literal children. Like, no. adopted student. It's like a teacher-student thing. Uh, Let's keep it a teacher-student thing yeah. instead of making it a terrible yeah. wizard dad thing. Because <laughs> he didn't get Tal until Tal was like, what, like 16, 17 or so? Whereas, like, Sorwe, he more, like, raised her. Yeah, yeah. Digression yeah, yeah. aside. To Soy, he is definitely <laughs> terrible with it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Tal is more like, yeah, the... the intern who moves in. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just a very, like, um, Cushiel's dart kind of situation. Except yes. not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Except much less romantic. Except with more punching. <laughs> so much more punching. Alcuin <laughs> versus Tal would end very quickly. It, very quickly. Yeah, Tal is way too bloodthirsty and bitchy. Um, <laughs> God, shall we move on to the next tentpole? Let's move on to the next tentpole, which Thank is... God. Uh, the next tentpole is All Systems Read by Martha Wells. And um, I have not read any Murderbot uh, stories before, but this is one of the Murderbot series. Uh, the first, it, I believe. Oh, it, is it the first? Yep. Oh, she did a great job at starting us in Medias Rest then, because um, the it's like a novella, and it starts out with this murder bot. This, um, it calls itself a murder bot. Yeah. It's a robot which has been designed to be a security unit. Cyborg, kind of cyborg. It's Let's, fleshy. It's, it's got it's got some fleshy, fleshy tissue bits. It's got some fleshy tissue bits. It's got lots of robot bits. Yeah. Let's not waste time like arguing whether it's an android or a cyborg. It's one of those. Um, <laughs> the and, robot boy. And before the, the story starts, which is why I thought this was not the first book in the series, <laughs> it talks about how, oh yeah, it I I hacked my um governor what right. is it? Governor module? Governor module, yes. I hacked my governor module, so now basically I have free will. 
Um, and Martha Wells does such an elegant job at sort of like vaguely referring to these things that happened. I was like, oh, this must not be the first book in this series. But I had no problem understanding what was happening anyway. Um, and so this murder bot has been rented out by its owner company to a team of planetary exploration scientists who are doing some surveying on a new planet that has been discovered to see if, whether it has mineable resources and stuff starts going wrong and there's kind of a mystery about why are all of these things that look like sabotage happening are they really sabotage or are they an accident spoilers it's sabotage <laughs> if you're asking that question yes and Murderbot, which is adorable and very endearing and relatable, just wants to be left alone to watch its soap operas <laughs> and, <laughs> and mood, really. Yep, yep. Eternal mood. One of the things that I really loved about this book that it did was how clearly the team around Murderbot, like, adopt it. Yeah. Within, like a chapter or two they're doing the like humans imprint on Roomba thing yes <laughs> yes, yes they are <laughs> oh you have feelings let's talk about your feelings and Murderbot is like I will kill you and tries I to run away to and talk like, about pretends my... to shut down so it doesn't have to <laughs> my feelings are I don't want to talk about my feelings <laughs> which and, it's, it's, it, and Murderbot just gets so taken aback by the fact that the humans have done this like, why are they why are they coming back for me i'm a security unit why are they trying to make like, keep me in and make me included i don't want to be included in their human feelings like i'm a yeah. toaster leave me alone but i yeah. think that part shit. of that was actually really fascinating character work because it's also made sort of clear that murderbot is a little bit fucked up um, mm -hmm. That murderbot was involved in a very traumatic event where it ended up killing a bunch of people not really on purpose, uh, and has now decided that its purpose is murder and it is terrible and it is definitely an it. Mm -hmm. mm. And is not interested in being redeemed and refuses to think about any of the things that happened explicitly, but it's also really clear how much they have shaped it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is just such good, like, craft on yes. Martha Wells' part. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I liked is that you can see Murderbot's narration flicking back and forth between using words like I felt this, I wanted this, like actual emotive words, and describing emotional states in terms of physical systems mm -hmm. and you know input of this kind. And I could down dial down that input and not I felt this, but there was, you know, my senses for this or my systems for this were overloading. Right. And I think if you're writing a character that is not working with human biology, but is working with engineering, then that can be quite fun to play with. Throwback mm -hmm. to episode one, robot fucking. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Where everything is described, not in, you know, in terms of arousal and input and output. It's all like, oh, my goodness, my processes my are so were overwhelmed. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Let a computer science person write all of your robot sex. Yep. Good stuff yep. happens. That's and the other thing that I really liked about this particular story is that the plot basically hinges, as you described, on whether or not you can hack somebody's actions or motivations mm -hmm. and the extent to which – and obviously there's a lot of plots out about control and manipulation, but this is about the extent to which somebody can be completely overtaken and it's the very non-humanness of mm. murder bots that has made it 
be seen as something that can be completely overtaken and just used as a tool. Mm. Right. Because it doesn't have a mind, it has programming. It has programming and it's its own, and it's its brokenness in inverted comments that allows it to do something human-like. Be like, "Mm, no, actually. And on this topic, I see that we have a fun fact Macy corner. Is that correct? Macy will insert her usual mini rant about how uh, hacking is MacGyver. Hacking is what MacGyver does. Mm -hmm. Cracking Mm -hmm. is what security threats do. Uh, and these are two different things. Uh, yes. But yes. My sure. dad used to have the exact same rant. <laughs> They're different. They're Basically different. word for word. <laughs> yeah. Hacking is the good guys. Cracking is the bad guys. Uh, yeah. uh, one of the things that was striking me as I was reading it is the fact that exactly as you said, Alex, they throw you in very in media res and give you a very brief amount of time to latch on and empathize and to get yourself under the skin of our point of view character, Mm -hmm. partly because it's a novella, uh, partly because it's an adult science fiction novel and you're expected to sort of keep up a little bit more than it would if it was, if it was a children's movie. Cause I was thinking about how is it different to Wally the Mm. film Mm. and Wally as a film does a very clever thing where it gives you about what, like half the film just Mm. with Wally. So you have like the first third is just Wally. Right. Doing his thing. And it's harder to get under the skin because you haven't got thought, you haven't got language, you haven't got identifiable emotion apart from when you, you can see the emotion being made by the shape right. of the eyes. And you haven't got something very easy to latch onto in the first paragraph, like I want to be left alone to watch my soap opera. <laughs> so it gives you a huge chunk of the film to empathize with that character before it even introduces another character in the shape of Eve. And then it brings in the humans in the last chunk so that by the time you get there you your emotions are engaged whereas this one just shows you right in with the the non-human surrounded by humans and is like keep up here we go yeah yeah pixar is very good at triggering that humans will imprint on the roomba kind of (laughs) yes thing yeah macy but yeah i wanted to actually get back to what freya was saying just a second ago which is i think that there is a big thing to be careful of when you're working with non-humans when there are humans present in the narrative which is that you end up having to talk about being othered and being Mm -hmm. different Mm. because there is the default present right your human audience is going to read the humans that are present as the default which is why i think it was so smart of cassie in the unspoken name to just not have humans it would have been trivially easy to have them but why bother Mm -hmm. Um, whereas here, in Murderbot in general, Martha Wells wants to be talking about alienation, about being something other and different, um, and so there needs to be the humans as well. Yeah. Whereas mm. I think that books like, what's the cosy space opera that everybody always wrecks me? Is it the Becky Chain, uh, the Wayfarer yes. series? Yes, the Wayfarer series. Thank you, Freya. Um, Freya <laughs> always does this for me. It's great. Um, the Wayfarer series, frankly... I think would have been better if the main characters hadn't been human, if everyone had been aliens. Mm. Because it privileges one species by having yeah. them be us. Mm. Yeah. And some, yeah. sometimes it will show, like, Farscape does that as a mm-hmm. point of view. Like, Farscape is like, here is your point of view character. He is a generic white human man. And then, and boom, here, here is this be. hot human lady. Oh, wait, she's yes, not she's human. Not, she's not human. She just looks very human. And like, humans. Fancy <laughs> human and like spoilers for the end of Farscape is humanly compatible enough that they hey. can like get married and have a kid. But yeah. 
But everybody um, else is very alien in that. So I think it works for contrast. Right. And it works because the human is the fish out of water. Yeah, because it's a puddle fantasy. Yeah. Indeed. But yeah. you were talking about Pixar. Alex, I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder why, Freya. Yes. So speaking of both the otherness of having a character that is non-human in a world of humans and animated films for children, mm. our third tentpole is the film Ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> which is a Disney Pixar film. The main character of which is a rat called yep. Remy, a French rat who lives with his family of other rats and has a passion for food. He has a very, very acute sense of smell. He gets obsessed with flavors and the idea of combining flavors and learns that there is a famous chef in Paris called Gustave. And due to events, uh, he ends up in Paris at the restaurant of Gustave, who's now passed away. Gusto, Acc- I believe. Oh, sorry, Gusto. Sorry, it's Gusto, not Gustave. Um, accidentally becoming a chef there by steering <laughs> around by the hair, a very helpless... He gets a human mecca. He has a human mecca in the form of a very helpless young man called Alfredo Linguini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is very amusing to me that the human, like supporting character in this is a literal wet noodle in name as well as in personality Uh, just completely hopeless human really but it's a it's a lovely film about paris and about food like it's just all about the joy of food in terms of creation and in bringing people together and in stirring up memory and also like how difficult it is but how exciting it is to work in a professional kitchen and the main character is a rat, and there is a very clear, although I was going to say clear, I think the <laughs> distinction they're trying to set up is quite clear, but I think the message becomes a bit muddled when it Mom. comes to, well, he has this thing with his dad where his dad's trying to take him to a, all these dead rats and say, this is what happens when you get involved with humans, they just want to kill us, we can't coexist, because it's setting up this idea of rats as intelligent beings, <laughs> but at the same time they are still the natural enemy of a kitchen and you're still going to get your kitchen closed down if there is a rat in the kitchen. So you're like, mm-hmm. it, it, it creates a lot of world building questions that I think the kids are not meant to ask and we're just <laughs> going to ignore for the purposes of enjoying a delightful film about food. Yep. Yeah, it was very cute um, and kind of the right, like, lighthearted, funny thing to be watching right now. Yes. But yeah, did it matter that he was a rat? Yes. But be, I think he had to tell the story that they wanted to tell. There had to be this immense barrier between him achieving mm-hmm. his dream. His dream is to become a professional chef. And there is a very clear barrier of a rat, <laughs> the, the rodent, the, the pest that eats your food supplies, the natural enemy of a professional kitchen that is going to be visited by health inspectors. Like, it's very important that he's a rat and mm-hmm. that, that he comes from a colony of rats that need to eat and that by eat by surviving sorry, survive by eating the garbage. And then he's put in a place where he wants the good food, which means he has to steal it. Mm. I found that there was a really interesting, almost overemphasis on how evil it was to steal food in this film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was that a bit was, weird. It was. A, I think like they the, just the, like needed a lever. Yeah, because he had this tiny ghost gusto while you're around being like, <laughs> do not steal food, Remy. Food will always come. <laughs> To those who love to cook, and I'm like, that's like, not, no, that's not true. <laughs> that's not how, okay, how any of that works. Not that's how any not of that real. works. 
him him being a rat also means that we even though he's the protagonist we empathize with and understand not so much empathize with but we understand on a visceral level why the other people are reacting to him the way that they are mm. like if we see a rat in the kitchen we also freak out and go oh my god ah, ah get the rat out get the rat out it's icky it's disgusting right so we're on his side but we can see the other side and we can see what everybody is facing the obstacles that they're facing in order mm. to sort of overcome their initial conception of him and see him as a person rather than as a rat mm. But it is interesting that his entire drive from the beginning of the film is to be more like a human. Yeah. yeah. Like his, his rat family are all just like, we're rats, this is fine. We run around on all fours, we eat this stuff, we always have, like this is up, we're fine with this. And he's like, oh, we should be walking on our hind paws to keep our paws clean and we should wash them carefully. And, you know, humans are more civilized. Look what they do with food. There's this kind of, you it's... know, admiration of a superior, in quotation marks, culture. Yeah. That it's has a slightly a little weird bit, undercurrent. It, this, I think, is the tentpole of ours that comes closest to falling into the trap of making it about race. Yeah. Yeah, or at least trying to tell an oppression narrative with yeah. inexpert tools, I think. Yeah, right. Like, if this story... You could imagine a story set in apartheid South Africa or in frankly, America, not that long ago, about a young kid who wasn't white, who dreamed of being a chef, who would get chased out of kitchens. And there's right. a lot of parallels here. And I'm not sure that I know that they thought them through. No, and I right. think, and, and, and like an animated film that does, and it like is making a much clearer attempt at doing that kind of narrative mm -hmm. with Zootopia. And I think it works better in Zootopia because okay. there are no humans. Right. Like they're doing right. a predator-prey thing, which is very clearly meant to be a parallel, not necessarily for a particular racial uh, dynamic, but for an oppressed class and a mm. more powerful class. And I don't know, I think it does some things well and some things badly, but you're right in that it, it's... In this one, it is a bit weird because it's very clearly like, here is the human and here is the non-human. Yep. And the non-human is a pest. And yeah. humans are superior for all of these reasons. Yeah. And at the end, everybody is happy because they have become more like humans. Yeah. And yeah. we could certainly go down a very long tangent about the problems <laughs> with non-human characters when you're trying to make something about race. So I recommend Lindsay Ellis's video essay on the okay, film nice. Bright, which I've not seen, but it's a film about... Um, an alternate uh, world where there are certain non-human races, including, I think, fairies and orcs. And yep. it's about a cop, a cop partnership where one of them is an orc, right? Right, right, yes. right, that film. Yep. It was it was weird, to say the least. Go watch Lindsay Ellis's video essay. Yeah. She usually says smart things. But I think yeah. we are two-thirds of the way through the episode. We should possibly oh, move on towards the more general discussion. Mm. Well, when, can, I, can I make just very briefly visit this last point about sure. animals for children? Because I think Ratatouille, as, as a kid, it's a kid's film, and I think animals as protagonists are obviously much more used in children's mm -hmm. media. Um, I grew up reading the Red War books a lot, which are books with hu where it's very much animals playing the roles of humans in a society. There are no humans in the Red War books as far as I can remember, just lots of food. Yep. So much food. <laughs> yep. 
lots um, of acorn feasts. And you can kind of do a taxonomy or spectrum of this when even just looking at the Disney canon. So you've got these human stories being told with animals like Zootopia and also Robin Hood. Ah, <laughs> ah Robin Hood. Oh, the Disney Robin Hood with the foxes. Yep. Yep. It's yep. a good film. The, the burgeoning <laughs> birth of furries are everywhere. Robin Hood, the fox. Um, <laughs> and then you've got <laughs> animals. Maid Marian. Yep. Animal stories with some supporting humans. So Ratatouille mm-hmm. falls into that. 101 Dalmatians right. mm-hmm. falls into that as well. Yep. And then you've got stories that are mostly about the animals. The humans are pretty much irrelevant, but they are set in a human world, like the Aristocats. I loved that film. Yeah, I loved it when I was a kid. I watched it over and over. And because you have such a wide variety, it depends on the story that you want to tell. Right. You're always telling a relatable human story, but you're using an animal. And I'm just trying to think, what do you think about why you would do that? Is it because of the assumptions that we bring to, I guess, either the personalities or the characters of certain animals? Like the way that we as humans anthropomorphize them already or is it something else i think they're engaging visually um Mm -hmm. i think they might be less threatening to children uh, than an adult would be uh watching stories about adults um and they're kind of ageless animals yeah Hmm. yeah Yeah, that's true i'm thinking now of like basil the great mouse detective (laughs) that was a good one the sherlock holmes because it's true like if you're going to adapt sherlock holmes for children for children yeah, that's, it seems like the only way that you can do it, really. Well, you do that, or you do a kid genius. Mm. Yeah, yeah you totally different thing. You either make thing. the character a child, or you make him a mouse. <laughs> I think kids are just more interested in animals than they are in adults. Adults are boring. That's adults just a fact. Adults are really boring. That's just, just really boring. Exactly. exactly. All yeah, they care true. about is suits. And then you can sell a lot of merchandise if there are animals that's as well. That's true. I think, true. I think that is a non-minor consideration for Disney. Oh, but Hamlet okay, let's talk about this a little bit more generally because I'm going to ask you two, why should we work with non-humans in general? Because there are some kinds of stories that you can tell if you've got lots of different types of people on a page. Ah, and I like I'm that. Thinking, and I, I'm just going to jump a little bit down in my um, dot points here and talk about angels and demons. Not okay. only things like the uh, good omens, but I'm thinking about the good place. Huh. And The Good Place has human characters at its heart, but most of the supporting cast are demons. Or Janet, who is a construct, but is also a delightful, yes. you know, human, a human appearing construct. Right, yeah. And I, I particularly, I think it's a fun story to tell, not because you can lean on the fact that the most of these people are demons who look just like humans for right. comic effect, dramatic effect, unexpected magic or, you know, technology that looks like magic in weird places. Like, yeah. th- like there's a quote from the character Vicky, which is, I am a strong, independent acid snake in the skin suit of a strong, independent woman. <laughs> and you forget that characters like Vicky are actually like amorphous evil blobs or independent oh, right. acid snakes because they yeah. look human, but you can do really fun things with the fact that you are lulling the audience into forgetting that this character is not human. You are making me think of something that is completely nothing to do with fiction. Um, So fun facts, Macy the education human. Okay. Corner, I guess. So in my spare time for shits and giggles, I sometimes try to teach engineers how to have empathy. As in, I teach boot camps on this. This is either the this. Lord's work or a fool's errand, but <laughs> well, strength so, to you. 
So here's one of the exercises that we do basically has people sort themselves into Hogwarts houses and then brainstorm about how the other Hogwarts houses might want to be treated that's different from how they might themselves want to be treated. Mm. You know, so like if there are some humans who really like organization, then maybe we should give them a list of rules, Um, you know, very basic stuff. And what this is about is for a lot of people, it doesn't come naturally to think that other people's brains work completely differently to the way that yours does. Yes, that's true. Um, For a lot of particularly neurotypical people, but many of us anyway, um, you tend to model other people's drives and desires and thought patterns as your own. And so you look at somebody who does a thing um, and you think, if I did that thing, it would mean I was really pissed at whoever I said that to. And then you get upset because this person is clearly angry at you. Even when, no, that's just like, this is a very introverted person who didn't want to talk to anyone right now. It might be different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that what we get, like Freya was saying, when we're working with non-human characters, with non-human species, is we have a very clear visual or textual language that reminds us, that cues us, that all of these characters are working from a different standpoint, from a different mental model to one another, Maybe? Is, yeah, is I that? Think, yes. No, I, think, I was I think going to right. say something I... like that, but that's so much more of a graceful way mm. to say it than I was going to. So yes, mm. 100%. And I think it works particularly well for that in large ensemble science fiction mm. shows mm-hmm. like Star Trek. Um, and you were talking about Babylon 5 earlier and oh, Star Babylon Wars 5. as well, where you have very clear visual distinctions between uh, the different alien races, most of which, not all, but most of which are humanoid. But you're right, it makes it really easy for you to remember, okay, these people could be coming at this from a completely different context. Yeah, yeah. The same thing, but from a slightly different angle. It also means that you have, as a writer, the plausible reason for your characters to have really weird, unhuman or inhuman motivations. Like, Mm. they just want this thing, which no human would ever really be interested in or fixated on to this point. But because your character is not a human, it makes it, like, Mm. it gives you new avenues for the plot to go because you don't have to make them act like a human. I don't know that I agree that there are things that you could never get a human to think at, but I can agree that, like, it's easier for an audience to believe you. Yeah. You have to Humans don't have a hive mind. And if you write a... The Keldu. What? The Keldu in uh, Nine Fox Gambit. Are those humans or are those fancy humans? They're just humans. They have technology. Yeah. It sounds like those might be edging towards fancy <laughs> humans, though. <laughs> well, I mean, I had a, I had a dot point here as to whether mm-hmm. you know, Jadal in, in the Machineries of Empire series is a human or a non-human character because he's basically a shade that is a construct of... Mm something that was once human and memory called empire does a similar thing with the imagos of you have a construct that is more or less memory or personality but it's not the human anymore is wei wushan still human after he possesses mo Zhuan yu yes why well because he was human before and then his spirit got transferred into a new human's body so i would say he's still human so yes, jadao so is still human it's basically 0.5 plus 0.5 makes one. Yeah. <laughs> Except I think in Jadel's case, we have an extra 0.5 in the form of <laughs> Kel Karis, who still Kel wants Karis her like, body back. Hello. <laughs> uh, uh, very good. Oh, dear. Very good. We have 
to jump down a little bit, we have something that I definitely want to make sure we have time to have in this episode, which is Freya's rant about the Cats movie. Yeah. <laughs> This yes. is filed, hold on, <sighs> dear listeners, this is filed under, as a sub-dot point, under the dot point, deliberate explorations of the monstrous. <laughs> I don't think we can really call anything about the 2019 Tom Hooper, question mark, masterpiece, question mark, cats. Deliberate. Deliberate. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I am coming from this, from a place of desperate love for the Cats musical, and especially the filmed stage version from the 90s. Because yes. that was very, very important to Baby Freya. That was the first musical I ever saw. I was like six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's wonderful. I will hear nothing against Cats yeah. the Musical as a concept, especially as a musical that is very appealing to children. They don't mm-hmm. care that there is no plot. They just care that there are some amazing cats leaping around to catchy music and doing some yeah. cool dancing. Like that's it. Yeah. It's a great musical for children. As you grow up, you either love it or you're like, what the fuck is this? Because you either saw it as an impressionable child, or you didn't. But the the movie. There's just the the single fact that I learned and then noped out of the entire concept, like, nope, just not not doing it, was that they had to re-release it because they needed to edit out the buttholes. They had to Did do. They really? Well, they also had to patch on a whole lot of shit that they had forgotten in the like CGI. Like they left people, like, people with like had... a watch on, or like yeah, human hands. They hadn't like they. they just, mm, <laughs> Judy Dench's just human hands. So much uncanny valley. The only only good thing about the cats movie <laughs> is it has Stephen McRae in it, and the Skimble Shanks scene, while still dramatically weird, is very enjoyable if you just want to watch an Australian ballerina do some incredibly good tap dancing. <sighs> Stephen McCain. Anyway. But, okay, no. let's talk about actual monsters, though. Let's talk about... Uh, like, I'm sorry, oh, it's a Cats movie, not actual monsters. <laughs> sorry, no, go I'm, ahead. Come back. I'm it, was, about, it was some non-human protagonists and it all went wrong. Do the monster mash. It was a smash. Those monsters. Okay, Werewolves, sure. vampires. Um, like Feo was saying, angels and demons. Are those non-humans in the way that we've been talking about in the rest of this episode or are they something else again well i definitely would say angels and demons are non-human that's fair because they're a different society yeah werewolves and vampires i think it depends on the world building in your particular story because sometimes they lean very hard on the was once human is now Mm -hmm. undead human or different (laughs) is now vampire is now vampire i am a monster (laughs) (laughs) depends how much angst you want really and how much you really want to lean onto that am i human or am i not existential crisis for example, well, what we, we do dancing? in the shadows is mostly just fancy humans. That's yes. fair. Uh, yeah. Fancy you know? is one word for what those are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because uh. like they're doing they're doing the like vampire aesthetic, but it's mostly just because they feel like this is how vampires are supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, and the werewolves in what you do in the shadows are basically humans that are also unfortunately a bit dogs. <laughs> Jupiter ascending. Mm. But it's true. Like, if you're thinking about playing non-human protagonist on hard mode, because of what Alex was saying about how you can explore different or unusual motivations, Mm. I think the further from human you go, the more difficult that is. Yes. And there's an anthology that I have a story coming out in that the Canberra Speculative Fiction Guild is doing Mm. called Unnatural Order, which is specifically about 
very non-human main characters. Huh. Like trying to write stories where the, the main characters are as far from the normal human and into the realm of the monstrous right. as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm thinking a little bit also about how much it matters that your non-human comes from a society. Right? Okay. How so? Like, it, there is an entire society of this type of non-human that thus has mm. different rules and cultural expectations. I see, I see, I see. Because mm, then, then you have to world build around a culture, not just world build something's physiology and motivation. Right, and I think that that's what we've been talking about most of the time through here, right? Is non-humans, like, the rats have a culture, um, the orcs have a culture... Um, mm-hmm. Even if we're going back to Astolat in victory condition, the robots have a culture. Hmm. Right, right. Rather than like a protagonist who has gotten some monstrous, like who is an individual right. and totally isolated from everything else and has gotten some monstrous traits somehow through a curse or th- through something like that's not about them interacting with their s- their background or their society and how it conflicts with this human society it's more about them as an individual trying to deal with what's happened to them yeah so, like the, the beast in beauty and the beast right right, still right exactly basically a human he just has a lot of angst around like his, his external is something else yeah yeah but there's no but there's no ever any suggestion that there is somewhere a society of beasts who grew up <laughs> as beasts and are born as beasts <laughs> And possibly oh, have a it's... whole other set of cutlery that is not a tiny spoon. Like, yeah. one of my few favourite things about the ancient movie Shrek, which I believe was half of our lifetimes ago, Alex. Gosh, um, yeah. More than that. That the, the, the beast and the princess had the princess transform into also a beast at the end of the curse. Yes. Yeah. That was great fun. The original Shrek is a point... very good movie, I think. It I is. I want to point out, Macy, you said half our lives. I just looked it up. The original Shrek movie came out in 2001, which means it was two thirds of our nice. life ago. Well done. We were <laughs> tiny children. This is great. Wow. But we have somehow reached like nearly the end of the episode and only really yelled about Astolat fanfic. Can we yell about some different fanfic? Yes. 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 Let's. So when it comes to non-humans in fanfic... I wanted to briefly mention the existence of velas in Harry Potter <laughs> Can one be brief when mentioning velas? Velas. Uh, I mean, look, if, if if J.K. Rowling into her children's book series is oh going to gosh. drop something with as much comedic <laughs> slash pornographic potential as the existence of velas, you can be damn sure that fandom is going to pick it up and go, we'll take this. Thank you. there's a lot of fanfic out there where where draco is a villa there's so much excellent fanfic called drop dead gorgeous where harry Uh, is a villa even more comedic effect but you can tell that of all the races and species and non-human things that are mentioned in the harry potter books it's interesting and telling (laughs) on who is in fandom and what their priorities are as to which ones get picked up for fanfiction reasons ah the beautiful women who make everyone horny magically yes like, let's 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 talk about male villas says let's fandom. talk about, oh god <laughs> instead of like i don't know the women who exist but sure but i so the the serpents earlier were asking whether there are any other harry potter races who get like a spotlight in fanfic and this reminded me of a subgenre 
of Harry Potter fanfic that lives on the immortal fanfiction.net and probably also on like Fiction Alley, but not really on AO3, um, which is the AU where Harry was taken away and raised by X. Mm-hmm. Where X, I have definitely seen goblins more than once. Harry mm-hmm. raised by the goblins. I have mm-hmm. definitely seen werewolves. I believe I've seen unicorns. Not the okay. giant squid. No giant I don't squid, believe Harry. because there's a little bit of a drowning problem there. Oh, they've got those like what's it called? Weed, gillyweed. Oh my gosh. Well, Freya, Freya is now issuing a challenge to our darling listeners. If anyone wants to write the <laughs> Harry was raised by the raised giant, by the squid, giant fic. squid and <laughs> giant fix squid. Wait, Look, I mean, help. come on. Like the if you want to make it a Harry Draco fic, you've got the oh fact that God. the Slytherin uh, common room is under the lake. You just have, like, random half-wild merman Harry waving through the window. That feeling when you're trying to make out with your boyfriend and your squid dad is just sort of watching through the window going, use protection, kids! Yes, please, someone write this, thank you. Being raised by the squid will not give you tentacles, no matter how hard you wish for them. (laughs) This is magic land, Macy. I'm sure there is a Latin spell somewhere Uh, that will make tentacles exist. I Gosh. want to talk about Star Trek AUs, though. <laughs> oh, <okay>. Do you? <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> no, but, like, th- there's, like, one of the few fandoms where people will deliberately go off and do an AU so that they can make someone be non-human yeah, is yeah. the one where they will pick up, I don't know, the leverage OT3 and dropkick them into Star Trek and be like, all right, well, Elliot is clearly a Klingon and Parker is clearly a Vulcan. Go. Mm. Go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing. Super fun, but it's also completely about like stereotypes. Yeah, because right. it's using non-human races as personality taxonomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which a is taxonomy, which <laughs> is hashtag problematic. Yeah, on a variety of different vectors. And considering that we have two minutes left in this episode, we don't really have the time. So hmm. it's problematic. Let's leave it. But at we that. also did it to ourselves in our introduction yeah. to the episode. Yeah, That's I mean, true. I don't think that using it as, like, personalities no. is... I just write really bad poetry. That's why I'm the Vogon one. Get, get, get. <laughs> but who put, um, who put this very last dot point here? Well, uh, it, was technically, it. It, it was technically you, Macy. It was I only typed it. I you... was taking dictation. Yes, well, darling listeners, we briefly raised the idea of talking about animal transformation, so a human character turning into non-human, and then we realized that can probably be its own episode, because there is a lot of fanfic, <laughs> but also non-fanfic out there about <laughs> characters being transformed specifically into animals, rather than the story being about animals. Mm-hmm. And I think we can probably dig deep into that and talk to you about all sorts of stories where somebody is suddenly a small fluffy creature that their significant other has to look after. Technically the witcher, <laughs> I believe, right? Yeah. The witcher has a, like, were-hedgehog? Oh, that's right. The witcher <laughs> does have a were-hedgehog. <laughs> Jesus Christ, we already have the tentpoles for this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, darling listeners. I don't think I don't think we have a pithy ending line. No matter how hard we try, our brains are not in the place no. for pithy ending lines. Forgive us for how chaotic this was. We hope you enjoyed it. Please, we stay love well. you. Bye. 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 Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent 
podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. I wish I had some philosophical reflection on the nature of humanity to add, but dear listeners, look, let's be honest, we all have pandemic brain at the moment. And I'm very hungry now, especially after thinking so much about a movie that celebrates food. So here's some advice for you. Venture into the Australian corners of the internet and look up a recipe for pikelets. They're palm-sized, slightly sweet, fluffy pancakes. You make a whole plateful at once and you serve them at room temperature with butter and jam, or sometimes lemon curd. Except no substitutes. You're welcome. For the next episode, two weeks hence on May the 6th, we'll be pouring a cocktail of our choosing and diving into our various serpent cast inboxes and ask boxes so we can answer your questions and generally chat about topics of your choosing. Those are always really fun, chatty episodes, and hopefully we can bring you some good soothing laughter and randomness and nerdy banter during this time of social isolation. Questions? Comments? Breathless adulations? As ever, you can get in touch with us at serpentcast at gmail.com, and we're at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. Or you can come and join the fan Discord community, which is linked on the About the Show page of the podcast website. If you do enjoy the podcast and would like to support us, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash serpentcast. Or please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes so we can continue to reach new listeners. And by the way, your hands are looking gorgeous. Have you been moisturising them in between washes? Yes, I thought so.